0: Please take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians, chapter 2. This morning, we're going to take one Sunday off from our sermon series in Genesis and do something special today. Almost 500 years ago, on October 31st, there was a loud banging on a door, and that banging wasn't the knock of little Jedis and little princesses and little pirates with big bags waiting to be filled with candy for Halloween. It was the banging of a hammer pounding one of the most important documents in the history of Christianity to the wooden doors of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. A young monk by the name of Martin Luther had become fed up with the corruption and spiritual bankruptcy that was running rampant in the Roman Catholic Church. And the document he nailed to the church door was his famous 95 Theses, which aired his concern about the church and its leaders. And that moment was the spark that fanned the flames of what we now know as the Protestant Reformation. And tomorrow is the 499th anniversary of that great moment. And so I thought it would be fitting for us today on Reformation weekend to revisit the core elements of the Reformation. They are the core elements of what Harbin's Community Baptist Church believes in. They are truths and doctrines worth fighting for and worth dying for, and indeed, many have died for these truths. And it's important for us as a church to continue to remind ourselves and to fortify ourselves in these truths. Because if we ever stray from these truths as a church, we will have ceased to be a Christian church. If we ever stray from them in our own lives, then we will have ceased to be Christians. And so, with that said, I'd like you to stand with me now in honor of the reading of the Word of God... And I've, I've actually got, um, in addition to what we are all about to read here in Ephesians 2, I've got a couple of scriptures that I'd like to read before and after the Ephesians passage. There's the first one there. But he answered, Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And now let's go ahead and look at the one in Ephesians chapter 2. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then the next verse I'd like us to look at, Romans 11. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things... To Him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, have mercy on me, a sinner, who is attempting to do something very, very weighty and serious, which is preach the Word of God. And you know that I have nothing in and of myself to offer my brothers and sisters here this morning, but you have everything. And so, Father, I pray that that through the worship service this morning, you would bless, you would help, you would encourage, you would even save. Father, would you do that this morning? Father, thank you so much for your kindness and your mercy that you have shown to us in Christ Jesus. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Out of the Reformation arose five great pillars of truth. These truths had been part of the light of Christianity from the very beginning, but in the Middle Ages, that light had begun to dim, and so God had raised up men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Zwingli and many others to fan the flame of truth again. And these five pillars are known as the the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Sola is a Latin word, it means only or alone. And the first of these solas is absolutely foundational, which is why I want to start with this one. It is sola scriptura, which means the scriptures alone. And the principle of sola scriptura is all about the supreme authority of the scriptures in matters of faith and practice. Everything we need to know about salvation and for our spiritual lives can be found in the scriptures. We believe that this is the word of God. And so we hear it, we trust it, we believe it, we obey it. In fact, we center and organize our very lives around it. From the very beginning... Even going back to creation, we discover that humanity is wired by God in such a way that our very lives are to be bound up in his word. God doesn't create Adam and Eve and then say, now you figure out how you should live and good luck with that. Instead, God, he forms them, he makes them and immediately he gives a word to them. To them, a creation mandate telling them how now they shall live. But we also see immediately that God's revelatory word is not simply instructions for life. Instead, the word and our response to it is actually a matter of life and death. The day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God says, The day that you sever yourself from my word and turn away from my word and disregard my word, the day that you do that, you shall surely die. To receive the word of God brings life. To reject it brings death. And so when the devil comes as a serpent in Genesis chapter 3, his primary mode of attack against Eve is to assault and cast a shadow of doubt on the word of God. He slithers up to Eve saying, Has God really said? Because he knows that if he can sever Adam and Eve from the word, he can kill them. Later on, Jesus Christ who is God in the flesh, comes to earth. He brings a word. In fact, he is the very word of God in the flesh. And he says, whoever hears my word and believes has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. He says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe Jesus' words about himself and respond accordingly, you will surely die. So our consideration of the word of God is not just an academic matter. It's a matter of life and death. And the reformers recognized this. And one of the core debates of the Reformation was, where can God's word be found? The Roman Catholic Church said, in the Bible. And... ...in the tradition of the church... ...and in the teaching of the Pope, in the magisterium. And from that arose all kinds of confusing teachings and beliefs... ...that are not only, some of them not only not in the scriptures... ...but some of them that even contradict the scriptures. Everything from the idolatrous praying to saints... ...to the doctrine of purgatory... ...to the inappropriate exaltation of Mary... Untethered from God's word, the Roman Catholic Church slid into strange superstitions like the fascination and veneration of holy relics. So, so you could go on a pilgrimage and behold the bones of saints or, or a, a thorn supposedly plucked from the crown that was thrust on Jesus' head or a piece of bread that was supposedly uh, from the original Last Supper. Or a hair on the, that was from the head of Mary. And you could be blessed by God in venerating these, these relics. But in the midst of all of the strange teachings of the church, the most dangerous of the doctrines was the Roman Catholic doctrine of salvation and justification. You may be able to get some things wrong. But this one, you can't get wrong. Life and death, heaven and hell are on the line. And so, when you've got the Roman Catholic Church teaching one thing, and you've got the Bible saying another thing, who wins? And the Reformers recognized that the stakes in this battle were very high. Five hundred years later, we, the heirs of the Reformation, must continue the fight, And we must always be vigilant. The battle for the supreme authority of the Bible over tradition and over the opinions of man is not over, not by a long shot. In some ways, maybe more urgent than ever. And I think perhaps where the battle for the Bible, the supremacy of the Word of God, where where the battle may be the most intense in our day in America is not in the world of secular academia. But in supposedly evangelical churches and denominations all across the country. Just happened again the other day. It's getting to the point where I'm not even shocked by these news stories anymore. I'm expecting them. Yet another person regarded as a Christian leader. She's very popular. She's even got a show on HGTV. It's not Joanna Gaines. Some of you fans of Fixer Upper are starting to get a little nervous there. This is another woman who has influenced many, many women in churches. She has now come out and endorsed gay marriage. Though three years ago she affirmed what the Bible said about marriage, but that since has been deleted from her blog. Now, I feel like lately Steve and I have been (laughs) addressing gay marriage and sexual ethics a lot. And it's not like I love to talk about it. Believe me, I, I would rather not talk about it. I'm sure Luther would have rather not had to talk about indulgences or whether the Pope could speak infallibly. But every age of the church has specific issues that arise, certain challenges that warrant a response from Bible-believing Christians, that, uh, the challenges that put us in the dock, so to speak, where we are forced to declare whether we really believe this is the Word of God or not. In the 1500s, there were different issues, like the greedy sale of indulgences in the Roman church. Indulgences, while supposedly available to spring people out of purgatory early, it was really just a big fundraising effort for the church. And there were other issues that led the reformers to stand on the word of God and proclaim the truth in spite of being persecuted, in spite of being mocked and ridiculed and scorned by the power brokers in the culture. Today, the word of God is still being challenged. But in some different ways. <clears throat> and the sexual revolution is one of those big ways. In every age and moment in time in the history of the church, the serpent whispers different things in different ways, but the message is essentially the same. It's the message he whispered to Eve long ago. Has God really said and just as in the medieval church, there are large sections of the church today that are listening to the serpent. There are entire denominations. There, there are large, hipster, culturally cool, non-denominational megachurches, and even churches that call themselves Baptist that are caving on this issue very quickly. And someone may argue, but Deemer, is, is the debate over marriage and sexuality, is is, is that really a matter of life and death? The reformers were battling over big issues about salvation and justification. Life and death matters. This is just about sex. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Why, why are you always talking about the, 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 the sexual issues and, and, and things like that? The reason why is because there's no no churches going around saying that it's okay to be a thief. No church is, is looking at their their statements of faith. No denomination is looking at their, their doctrines and saying, Well, well, it's it's okay to, to be a drunkard. This issue, however, is the linchpin issue of today. And for Jen Hatmaker or the Presbyterian Church USA, or anyone else who is supposedly, supposedly kind and loving endorses, affirms, applauds, encourages sexual immorality. They are endorsing, affirming, applauding, and encouraging a way of life that will keep people from inheriting the kingdom of God. Will keep people out of heaven. Friends, when we abandon sola scriptura, we abandon it to our own peril and to the peril of those we say we love. It is a life and death matter. The argument over marriage in our churches today is not simply about marriage. It's not simply about whether or not two adults can love each other or not in a certain way. At the end of the day, we find ourselves, friends, once again, 500 years later, fighting a battle over sola scriptura. And the question before the American church and Harbin's church is do we trust the word of God? Or do we, like the, the medieval Roman church, exalt our own ideas and beliefs and feelings and interpretations of reality as a Word of God, even if it contradicts the Word of God, which is found in the Scriptures? Do we become our own authority and subject the Bible to our judgment, or do we humbly submit to the judgment of the Scriptures? Will we trust that God knows best when he speaks not only in the areas of marriage and sexuality, but in every other area of life? Will we stand on God's word even if it means rejection, mockery, ridicule, being ostracized by society, or will we clamor for cultural approval and applause and and acceptance? I don't want to hear about how bold and brave Jen Hatmaker was nothing bold and brave about that. Everyone loves her now because she has thrown the word of God under the bus. Let our response to the present challenge be Martin Luther's response. When Luther was challenged by the Roman Catholic Church to recant his criticisms of church doctrine, Luther said this, unless I am convinced by sacred scripture, I cannot recant. For my conscience is held captive by the word of God. And to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. For Luther and the Reformers, the Scriptures and the Scriptures alone were the final arbiter and supreme authority of what we should believe and how we should live. Sola Scriptura is our foundation. And once that foundation is settled, we are now in a proper position to receive and believe what the Bible says about salvation which brings us to the next pillar sola gratia salvation is by grace alone it's a very popular uh, saying or proverb or whatever you want to call, call it uh, you probably have heard it maybe you could finish it for me god helps those who god helps those who help themselves you know according to one poll 82% of americans believe that's a bible verse Maybe some of you did as well. You're like, whoa, (laughs) that's not in the Bible. Those identified as born-again Christians did better by 1%. And whether or not people believe it's in the Bible, an even bigger concern of mine is that most people believe the proverb. That sure, God might help, but the decisive factor in all things, including our salvation, is what we do. Favor from God is earned on the basis of our performance it is commonly thought. That's precisely the kind of belief that Luther and the Reformers were fighting against in the 16th century. Roman Catholic Church agreed that God's grace was necessary for salvation, but it was grace plus man's efforts, man's good religious deeds, and these deeds become meritorious and count towards salvation. Now, this is just a a Roman Catholic thing, This belief that one gets to heaven by being good is a belief held by virtually everyone in the world. As I've preached the gospel to people over the years, probably the most common rejection that I've heard to Christianity is not intellectual atheistic arguments. Instead, it's an individual's belief and trust in their own inherent goodness and morality. I'm basically a good person. People all over the world Religious and irreligious operate under the premise that if you just seek God and try hard to do what is right, be a good person, you'll be saved. God will let you into heaven. Like that, like that one proverb, that, that might be something that you actually, you're like, oh, whoa, is that not true? And here's the question. You say, be good and then go to heaven. How are you going to do that? When Ephesians chapter 2, that we just read a while ago, describes man as spiritually dead, a slave to sin, a slave to the devil. How are you going to do that if Romans 3 is true? You can turn there with me if you want, Romans 3. Paul is writing to people who think they can enter into heaven by trying to be good. And Romans 3 verse 10 says, none is righteous. And just in case you miss it, he repeats it. He's quoting from the Old Testament No, 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 not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. I know that's a blow to your ego, but it's what the Word of God says. And then down in verse 20, it says For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So, if you get to heaven by being good and no one does good, and you would be included in that no one, that's a problem. Now, turn to Romans 8 for more encouraging news. Romans 8, verse 7, describes the natural state of man. It says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So, how can we be good if we are naturally hostile to God, if we don't submit to God's law, or as Paul says, if we even cannot submit to God's law, if it is in man's very nature to go away from God? So, you can see how Christianity stands out from the other major religions of the world. It is nowhere near as optimistic about the human condition as other worldviews. You can take Islam. Mormonism, Roman Catholicism, Buddhism, or you can just take your average American pseudo-religious person who maybe goes to church on Easter or Christmas, or you can take a drunk or a drug addict, and they are all way too optimistic about the human condition. What all those groups of people and worldviews have in common is that you've got or can't achieve enough goodness to make the decisive difference in your own salvation, to be made right with God. Man trusts in the goodness in his own heart, The Bible says the heart is deceitful and dreadfully wicked. You know, sometimes people will say, oh, God understands. God knows my heart. I'm like, that should not be comforting to you that God knows your heart. Man thinks he can achieve righteousness through his deeds. The Bible says even man's righteous acts are like filthy rags, tattered and stained when presented before a holy and perfect God. So only the Bible forces us to look into the mirror and face what we really are. Dead, slaves, rebels, corrupt, guilty, and hellbound. That's really bad news, I know. And That's why the gospel is such good and glorious news. In Ephesians chapter 2, you can turn there with me again if you like. We'll be there for a little bit. In Ephesians 2, Paul is reminding Christians of their past condition before they were saved. He's reminding them of their spiritual deadness, their slavery to Satan, their slavery to sin. He tells them, We all by nature are children of wrath. But then he gets to the good news in verse 4 But God! And oh, how everything just hinges on those two words. Those are two of the most exciting words in the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. There it is, sola gratia. When things look the darkest and the bleakest for humanity, God steps in, God rescues us. This is what grace is, my friends. God helps those who help themselves? Don't count on that. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God helps the helpless. It's also about God helping and rescuing His enemies. Scripture says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Mankind is considered enemies of God in scriptures, co-conspirators with Satan in this cosmic rebellion against God, deserving death and hell for our treason against him, but God. And so what you have described in Ephesians 2 is a resurrection. Paul says we were dead in sin and trespasses, but what did God do? He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God raises us from spiritual death to life. He takes hard hearts that were hostile to God and he softens them and transforms them and by his power we become new creations, striving to follow God where we once ran from him. And all this is a work totally of God and not of man. But if that's true, if God's doing the work, what, what, what do we do? we do anything? Yes, God saves and rescues and changes and transforms, but that begs the question, what must I do to be saved? You know, in Acts 16, the Apostle Paul is asked that very question, and Paul's reply isn't, be good. Paul doesn't say, be religious. Instead, he says to the man, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. In Ephesians 2, Paul explains it this way, in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not a result of works. And that brings us to our next great sola of the Reformation, sola fide, faith alone. The Catholic understanding of justification is that we, we need Christ's righteousness infused into us by various means of grace, like the sacraments. And then we cooperate with that grace to actually become righteous. In other words, in the Catholic system, God sees you as righteous when you actually become righteous through your own efforts. So whether it happens here in this life or in the torments of purgatory later on, you will never get into heaven unless you achieve the level of righteousness and holiness that God requires. And in Germany... The young monk, Martin Luther, was tormented by this. Luther knew his own sin. He knew his own guilt. He lived in constant torment over this. He would confess. He would pray. He would go on pilgrimages. He would serve. He would do religious deed after religious deed after religious deed. And he knew no peace. He fasted. And he prayed, and he bought indulgences, and he punished himself, and he slept without blankets outside in snowstorms. He lived an ascetic lifestyle, and he thought if he, if he just did enough of that, maybe he could earn favor with God. He would confess his sins sometimes for up to six hours at a time. Luther once said, if ever a monk got into heaven by monkery, it was I. Luther was the ultimate monk. He did it all. But in all of his monkery, there was never relief. There was never peace in his soul or in his mind. Luther began to realize that if his entrance into heaven hinged on his own righteous efforts, he would perish. And so he lived in misery. And some of you in this room, you know exactly what that feels like. Some of you have experienced the crushing weight of your own sin, and you really know, you really understand that you are a mess, and that you've got nothing to offer God in respects to righteousness. Some of you might be living in that moment right now, and church attendance and trying to do the right thing and being religious and all of your other efforts, they are not easing your conscience. That's, that's where Martin Luther was. But something happened to Martin Luther that radically changed his life forever and changed the course of church history forever. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1, Romans 1. Luther was studying for a series of lectures that he was going to give on the book of Romans. And he was reading the first chapter, and he bumped into a verse that caused him great Consternation and in verse sixteen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the power of God for salvation everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now Luther struggled with these verses. And and the reason why is because he was holding to the traditional Catholic view of justification and righteousness, that you acquire it through your works, through your efforts. And part of what contributed to the confusion was how the Roman church's Latin Bibles translated verse 17. In verse 17, the word righteousness in Latin is justificare, and that word was understood to teach that justification is what happens when, through the sacraments of the church and through the, the person's good works, unrighteous people become righteous. But a breakthrough happened. When he looked at Romans 1 in the original language, the Bible wasn't written in Latin, in case you didn't know. When he looked at Romans 1 in the original language, he found not the Latin word justificare, but the Greek word dikaiosune. And through study and exegesis, he came to realize that the sense of dikaiosude here in Romans 1 wasn't to make righteous, but instead to regard as righteous, or to count as righteous, or to declare as righteous. And this was Luther's breakthrough. The gospel is not about trying to be good. And if you're lucky, you'll garner enough righteousness to be saved and get into heaven. It's not a righteousness you receive by your works. Instead, it's a righteousness declared by God. In other words, you're not righteous because of your works. You're counted as righteous when God says you're righteous. And the light bulb came on for Luther. That the righteousness that would save him was not his own. He would instead be saved by a foreign righteousness. An alien righteousness. Indeed, Luther would be covered by the very righteousness of Christ himself. And therefore, God could declare Luther righteous. And that gift of righteousness is received by faith. So Romans 1.17 goes on to say, For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I want you to imagine how Luther felt. After all that guilt, after all that struggle to be good, after trying and failing and trying and failing and struggling against his own sin and depravity, suddenly his life was changed. Faith is trusting in the work God does for you as opposed to trusting in your own work to save you. There's a big difference between those two approaches. Christianity is not salvation by you climbing the ladder of good works to be received by God. Instead, the scripture tells us about Jesus Christ who descended from heaven to earth and to all who did receive him, the apostle John tells us. All who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Isn't that glorious news? As you look back on your life, and if you're like me, you have a filing cabinet of sins that could fill this whole building. Anyone else can relate to that? Or am I the biggest sinner in the room? Some of you are saying, yes, Demer, you are the biggest sinner in the room. Sure, I'll take that. Fine. And you know that you can't do anything to erase or shred those files. It's already happened. And the gospel is telling us that you can't get rid of those sins... But God can and God does for all who trust in him. The gospel deals with, with all of your past sins and it also speaks hope to future failures. As the apostle John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if, you're, if you've come here this morning unbelieving, turn away from trusting in yourself and believe. Believe. Be saved. The scripture isn't calling you to a vague kind of belief. It's, it's something very specific. It says, if you it says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, which leads to the next pillar, solus Christus in Christ alone. Now, how does that work? How does believing in Jesus take away our sin? And, and, and what does that do to The justice that our sin deserves. Is God just kind of just turning a blind eye and and, and we come to him and then he just, oh, okay. And he just sweeps the sins under the rug. Is that what he does? That's not right. That's not justice. Jesus, the son of God, lived the perfect righteous life you couldn't live. And because the son of God became a man, he could represent you. And when Jesus went to the cross, God took Not just a filing cabinet of one person's sins, but a whole Mount Everest of sin. The sins of millions and millions and millions of people. He dumped it all on Jesus and crushed him. God punished those sins in Jesus. To what end? Well, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He took our sin, and when we place our faith in Jesus and, and what he did on the cross, we get his righteousness. So there's a trade. There's an exchange going on. We get forgiven. We get changed. We get a new life. We get heaven. We get a future resurrection from the dead to look forward to because Jesus rose from the grave and defeated death on our behalf. We get all those things because it is faith that unites us to Jesus. Jesus died, so we died. Jesus was raised, so we shall be raised. Jesus is righteous, so we are covered with his righteousness. So now we can be declared righteous before God. And Martin Luther said... "...when I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost, and the doors of heaven were opened, and I walked through." What a glorious moment that must have been for Luther. For the first time ever, he understood the gospel, and why it was such good news. We are saved sola fide, through faith alone, sola Christus, in Christ alone. It's not just a generic faith that saves. It's faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's faith in Him, not in yourself. It's faith in His payment for your sin, not faith in your ability to pay it off and nullify your own sin through your good works. Not faith in all the things that the Roman Catholic Church said that we we need to trust in, like baptism and confirmation and, and taking the Mass and placing your hope in the help of Mary or the Pope or priests or dead saints. There is no other mediator between God and man but Jesus Christ. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Apostle Peter preached in Acts 4. In Christ, and in Christ alone, our hope is to be found. It is only in union with Him that we are saved. Martin Luther, in his treatise on Christian liberty, writes this, Who then can fully appreciate what this royal marriage means? Who can understand the riches of the glory of this grace? Here this rich and divine bridegroom Christ marries this poor wicked harlot... Redeems her from all her evil and adorns her with all his goodness. Her sins cannot now destroy her since they are laid upon Christ and swallowed up by him. And she has that righteousness in Christ, her husband of which she may boast as of her own, and which she can confidently display alongside her sins in the face of death and hell, and say, if I have sinned, yet my Christ, in whom I believe, has not sinned, and all his is mine, and all mine is his. As the bride in the Song of Solomon says, my beloved is mine, and I am his. Luther goes on to say, this is what Paul means... When he says in 1 Corinthians 15, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the victory over sin and death. You think Martin Luther got it? What a wonderful thing that God has done. And why? Why has he done this thing? There is an obvious answer and there is a less obvious one. The obvious answer is because he loves you. Didn't we not read that in Ephesians chapter 2 about the great love of God. Despite your sin, your spiritual ugliness, He has great affection and passion for you and loves you more than you love you. We know that part, but here's the other part that we sometimes miss, and that's that God has another passion. As much as God loves you and is passionate about you, there is something that He is even more passionate about, that He's even more zealous for, and that is His glory. And that brings us to the final Sola, soli deo gloria, the glory of God alone. Every aspect of our lives is to bring glory to God, including our our very salvation. You can look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Again, Paul says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Don't miss the end of that verse. So that no one may boast, may brag. Well, I did something. It was a tag team effort between me and God. He did, you know, 99% and I did one, but I did something. No one can brag. God does the saving. God does the raising. God even gives the gift of faith to the believer so that they can actually believe in the first place. And this leaves no room for boasting. No one can stand before God or, or man and say, I I helped myself to to believe, I was able to muster up, yeah, I know that my my heart was as cold as stone, and and I know I was dead, and I know I was hostile to God, and, and all of these sorts of things, but somehow I was able to birth myself and make myself born again, doesn't happen that way, give glory to God, don't take one shred of glory for yourself, for your salvation there's any boasting to be directed at anybody, God wants the boasting to be directed towards him. God saves you to show you how great and wonderful he is. Not to create a testimony about how awesome you are. He saves you to put his glory on display. If you're still in Ephesians 2, you can go back up to verse 7. It says that God has saved us so Okay, that so means, you know, the, the, the reason why, why has God saved us? God has saved us so that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We are meant to be an ongoing, eternal display of God's kindness for the next ten trillion years and more. Look at verse 10. We are not saved by works... But it says that we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That that word workmanship in the the Greek is poema. We actually get our word poem from it. Suppose you could say in a sense that you are God's poem. You are God's work of art. If you've ever been to an art gallery and have marveled at a beautiful piece of art, you recognize that that ultimately says something about the artist. It gives glory to the artist as he puts his workmanship on display. If you look over at Ephesians chapter 3, it says that God's purpose for saving us, in verse 10, God's purpose for saving us is that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible about the church. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Who are the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places? Now, those are, are, in general, angelic beings... And I think, in the context of Ephesians, that phrase is specifically pointing us to the demonic realm, to Satan and his demons. In his salvation of us, God's glorious manifold wisdom is put on display before everybody, including the fallen angels. And so the church becomes a sort of in-your-face to the devil, a trophy that says, I have beaten and outsmarted you, Satan. I am wiser than you are, and whenever you see the church, you are forced to see the glory of my manifold wisdom. His glory is a source of humiliation for the devil, but it is a source of enjoyment for his people. So if you back up and go to Ephesians chapter 1, Paul three times says, Says that the purpose of our salvation results in our praise of Him. So in Ephesians 1, verse 4, it says, In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Why? Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope, in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Why? Goes on to say, to the praise of his glory. All of the great reformation solas exalt and lift up and glorify God, don't they? Sola Scriptura exalts the word of God above any other word. There is no word that is above his. Sola Gratia exalts God because it demonstrates God's power and love in taking helpless sinners and liberating them from the tyranny of the devil. Sola Fide exalts God because we are reminded that no work we can boast about saves us. All we can do is put our faith in Christ which unites us to him and it is his righteousness, not ours, that saves us. Solus Christus, Christ alone, exalts the supremacy of the Son of God above all else. He is the the better mediator. He is the better lamb, the better sacrifice, the better priest. His blood is a better blood. And Soli Deo Gloria reminds us that he is at the center of our lives, our salvation and even our joy, which is why we can exult in Romans 11:36 that says for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for magnifying your glory through your word in creation, through salvation. Father, would you you help us to to exalt and enjoy your glory more? Father, sometimes we are so self-centered and we make life all about us. And yet, Father, you know that, 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 that life is all about you. You are at the center of the universe. We aren't And that is true, and it is also for our good that your glory be on display. It's for our good that you are at the center because it is you that is the supreme treasure and it's you that can give us more joy and peace and satisfaction than anything else in the world. So we need your glory. We need it to be put on display, not just to save us, but for our joy forever, Father, I pray that you would give us a a boldness, moving forward in a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to you and to your word. The Reformation must continue. We we must continue to to lay hold of those those principles that our forefathers uh, taught hundreds of years ago and even died for hundreds of years ago that there's coming a time now in our country where we need some new Martin Luthers. Martin Luther wasn't a god, he wasn't a perfect man. There's many things wrong with him. But you gave him a boldness about the truth, a boldness about the gospel, a boldness to stick his neck out, put his life on the line for you and for your truth. Where are the Luthers today? Father, raise up some Luthers from within this church to be your representative to be your ambassador. Father, I pray for anyone in this room who has walked in unbelieving that they may walk out believing, trusting in you and in your truth. Father, let them them have the appropriate regard for the Scriptures. And Father, let them recognize that their hope and their salvation is through grace alone, in grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Father, as we move into this final song, I pray that you would help us to continue to worship you in spirit and in truth. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.